three degrees. It can be the difference between snow and sleet, wearing a jacket or not. In your day-to-day -day life, it may not seem significant, but three degrees of global warming would be catastrophic. Heat waves, droughts, extreme precipitation, even fire. Three degrees of warming is really disastrous. The scary thing is, the world is well on its way there. Since the Industrial Revolution, the Earth has warmed between 1.1 and 1.3 degrees Celsius. This is a problem that babies you pass in the street will have to live with. Livestock is being sold by the thousands as a drought cripples that industry there. KDK's Tory Bean explains why East Texas Retro say no other option but to sell off. With little rain and triple digit temperatures, East Texas cattlemen are losing the grass and hay they need so their herd can survive. Hay is the problem. Albert Thompson has been a cattleman all his life and now he may have to sell some of his herd. We need rain. That's the message from ranchers tonight as they prepare to thin their herds and feed winter rations. There just has not been enough widespread rain this season to keep the grass growing in farmers' fields. Not only is it starting to show, but it is taking a toll. Corbett Wall from NationalBeefWire.com explains the state of the drought in Texas as of summer 2022. Unbelievable. I was in the auction business. We owned a sale barn for a time. You love a long trailer line. But I have never seen trailer lines like the ones that I've seen here lately, especially the one they had Saturday at Emory, Texas, at Emory Livestock Auction. That is East Texas. Uh, the entire state of Texas is horrible dry. We're dry up here in the Texas Panhandle. We're used to it. But you get down there in that Dallas area, Central Texas, they're used to a lot of rain. So when they get no rain, it's terrible. The ponds and creeks have dried up. Uh, hearing stories of a lot of wells that have gone dry. Uh, they've got no way to water those cattle. Whenever they run out of water, they've got to move cattle. Also, they can't afford hay. And a lot of those pastures are grubbed completely out. And they don't have anything for those cattle to eat. They've got to move them. Hay is exorbitant. Uh, you, you can't afford it. And, uh, and a lot of people are not even uh, able to put up what little dry hay they got because everything costs so much and diesel costs so much, everything costs so much, but there's been not enough growth uh, to really put any up. And so we're, we're just against it now. So People try to stay cool while out and about as temperatures reached at least 36 degrees in London when many of the usually lush green parks have turned brown after weeks of high temperatures. If Monday's soaring temperatures even caused the runway at Luton Airport to melt, then Tuesday could be worse. Up to 41 degrees is forecast in some places. That's considered dangerously high for the UK, and the Public Health Service is already under pressure. When a glacier the size of Rome collapsed in eastern Antarctica last month, it triggered alarm around the world. One of the major causes was global warming. But what phenomenon actually led to this collapse left the scientists wondering. A recent study has shown that the atmospheric rivers, also known as rivers in the sky, 
are causing extreme temperatures, surface melt and sea ice disintegrations. Atmospheric river is a long plume of moisture that transports warm air and water vapor from the tropics to other parts of the earth and is playing a great role in destabilizing ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula. This is not the first time such conditions have been witnessed. Back in 1995 and 2002, during the collapse of Antarctica's Larsen A and B ice shelves, a similar phenomenon was observed. And now, with the projected warming of Earth's temperatures, the biggest remaining ice shelf in the Antarctic Peninsula, Larsen C, is also at the risk of total collapse. Shalom everyone, I'm Pastor Scott Villain with Holy Impact Ministries and welcome to another edition of The Truth of Prophecy. Global warming or God's wrath. That's what we're here to decipher here today according to the wisdom given to us in our God-breathed scripture. You know, weather patterns are always changing and that is absolutely a fact. The temperatures of the earth have been modulating since its inception. But the question is, why? Why does the earth modulate and why do we have these wide swings of, of heat and cold and glaciers and, uh, and uh, drought? Why does that happen? And how does that happen? In order to answer that question, we must ask ourselves, who is in charge of the weather. And I want us to think about that question for just a minute. And are there any reasons why a drought might happen in a specific area and not in another area? I like to also think about that as well. And basically, in a nutshell, I believe that this basically depends on exactly what it is that you believe, what you know to be the truth. You know, there really is no question concerning who controls the weather. And I know that there are all kinds of different theories and ideas and philosophies about man uh, having the ability to change the weather or to be in control of the weather. But let's be clear, my friends. Man does not and is not in control of the weather. He does not control the weather, and he is not uh, able to manipulate the weather. Now, we do know that man has been seeding clouds, and we know about harp, and we know about all of these different uh, scientific experiments that man has been doing, and that's for sure. We, there's no question about that. Man would love to be able to uh, control the weather. But if man did control the weather, if one nation or another actually controlled the weather, they would be able to rule the world, literally, because they would be able to stop the rain in any nation. And therefore, they would be able to demand whatever it would be that they would want from that nation. And we know the greed of man's heart. If man had, if a nation had the ability to control the weather, let's be, let's be honest, my friends, that nation that was able to control the weather would rule all other nations. But we don't see that happening. And the reason we don't see that happening is because man is not actually 
as smart as he thinks that he is. And God still is in control, my friends, of the weather. Man can't control the weather any more than he can stop the common cold or get rid of the mosquito or stop global hunger or create peace on earth. The simplest of things, man still in all of his grand wisdom wisdom is unable to do. I'd like to read a scripture for you here uh, before we get started. And this comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. You know, as we move into the last days, we always have people that are scoffing, always have people that are laughing, always have people that will say exactly what we are told here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Let's read this together. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 through 7 says this, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, we see a couple of different things here that are very interesting in 2 Peter chapter 3. Number one, it was already foretold that many people would be scoffing and saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? You know, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Again, they do not understand and they do not realize the control that God has over the earth, including but not limited to the weather. And here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, our Father in heaven tells us once again that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for what? For fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so God says that the earth is stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, that's what God says. And so, the question then becomes, does God not tell us that he will heat up the earth? Is that not part of prophecy? Is that not part of what Peter is telling us here? Because I would submit to you that it is, and we're going to read more scripture that's going to confirm that and to clarify that as we move ahead. So, when is the earth going to be burned up with fire? When is this going to happen? Well, to understand that, all we have to do is turn to Revelation chapter 21, clear at the back of the Bible, and let's read what it says in Revelation chapter 21. And again, this is at the end of the 1,000-year millennial reign of our Messiah. This is what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 8 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, to the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, for the faithless, for the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so here in Revelation chapter 21, we see a new heaven and a new earth. Why is that? Because the first heaven and the first earth again has been burned up and done away with. And God creates for us a new heaven and a new earth. Now, again, this does not happen until after the 1,000-year millennial reign of, uh, of our Messiah. When our Messiah first comes, he will gather his people, and we will rule the nations with him. And that will happen again from Jerusalem. And for 1,000 years, the devil will be bound. At the end of that 1,000 years, the devil will be loosed, And again, many of the nations will gather together for one last hurrah to come against Jerusalem. And at that point in time, Yahuwah God will completely destroy the devil and all who follow him. And then the new beginning begins. So, who makes it into his kingdom? Well, we also see that right here in Revelation chapter 21. What does it tell us about who makes it into this new coming kingdom? He says the one who conquers will make it into his kingdom. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, he says, for the cowardly, for the faithless, for the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so a lot of information is right here in Revelation chapter 21. But once again, what does God say that he will do to the earth at the end of the age? He says he is storing it up for fire, for fire. I'd like to read a little bit more down through Revelation chapter 16. 
Let's also read Revelation chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. It says this, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Once again, my friends, who has power over these plagues? God has power, not man, God. And they did not repent and give him glory. Once again, my friends, we have it right here in the book of Revelation, chapter 16. It is written that our Father in heaven will allow the sun, will cause the sun to scorch the earth. Why? Because he is the one that has the power over these plagues. That's what the Bible says. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Think about that as we are trying to decide whether this uh, global warming is caused by man or is it caused by the wickedness of man and the wrath of God because of the wickedness of man. These are end time events, my friends. They are specifically prophesied by God. God says that he's going to cause the sun to scorch people because of their wickedness. And they still will not repent. And I want us to think about that as well. What is everybody saying about global warming? What are our national leaders saying? What's the World Economic Forum saying? What's the Pope of Rome saying? Oh, we can fix it. We can fix it. We just need a little bit of your money, a little bit more money out of your pocket, and we'll fix it. My friends, anybody here believe that? Raise your hand. Anybody here believe that? I sure don't. Do you really think that the leaders of the world are going to be able to fix what God says he is going to do at the end of the age? Do you think that the global leaders of this earth are going to be able to stop the hand of God? I think not. And we ought to know better than that. Now, if you are a fan of Yuval Noah Harari, then a lot of what we're talking about here today is not going to make any sense to you. But, if you are a true God-fearing, Messiah-following, cross-bearing Christian who knows your Bible, all of this will make perfect sense to you. You know, our Messiah was asked by his apostles. They said to him, they said, Why is it that you speak in parables? And in Matthew chapter 13, our Messiah tells them why he spoke to them in parables. He spoke to them in parables because he did not want them, the outsiders, to know what he was saying. He says, to you, the kingdom of God has been given. The knowledge of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. 
because they've already made their mind up who it is that they're serving and they, they're going to serve. And again, this is exactly why we have people like Yuval Noah Harari and Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum and President Joe Biden and many other leaders around the world who are proclaiming to us that they are more powerful than God. They can fix global warming. If you'll just dig deep enough in your pockets and give them your money. I want us to think about that. I want us to think about what it is that we are being told by men and who it is that we choose to serve. Who is it that we will believe? This particular video from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center shows an extremely interesting increase in global warming. And as we can see through this graphic display, the Earth has indeed begun to warm up or to heat up over the past few years exponentially. And it is indeed continuing to do so. And so the question at this point in time is not, is the earth warming? All we have to do is stick our heads outside the window to know and to understand that the earth indeed is warming. All we have to do is watch the devastation that's taking place around the world to know and to understand that the earth is clearly warming. You don't need a rocket scientist to explain that to you. The question is, why? That's the question. That's the dilemma. Why is the earth heating up? Why is the earth warming? And there seems to be two conflicting opinions as to why this is happening. I'd like you to listen to what man's opinion is as to why this is happening. In 1988, Dr. James Hansen then director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, stood before the U.S. Senate and testified that global warming has reached a level such that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship between the greenhouse effect and observed warming. It is already happening now. This last year, 2021, comes in as the sixth warmest year uh, on record, and it continues this uh, large, long-term warming uh, that Jim Hansen was detecting even in 1988. And in 1988, that was also a globally warmest year, uh, but now that ranks only 28th in the, in the ranking. And so the warming that we've had since uh, Jim Hansen's testimony uh, has been uh, dramatic and totally vindicates the concern and the warnings that he put out at that time. The next big question, why is our planet warming? Well, let's jump back to the Industrial Revolution. The release of carbon, mostly carbon dioxide, from human activities like driving cars, flying planes, and industrial burning of fossil fuels is responsible for the majority of climate change. Carbon exists in stores underground as oil, gas, and coal. When we burn it, we release it into our atmosphere where it traps excess heat coming from the sun, raising the temperature. 
According to NASA's Goddard uh, Space Flight Center, carbon emissions from human businesses and airplanes and cars are what's causing global warming. And so the question then becomes, is that true? Is that the truth? Is it carbon emissions that is causing the earth to warm? You know, I guess we'll just have to kind of take their word for it because there's no way for the average person to know this for certain. But this is what they tell us. They tell us that it is the emissions from cars and airplanes, but you do not see the rich and famous, those who are the most concerned about all of this, not flying in airplanes. You don't see them stopping doing what they're doing. I want us to think about what it is that they're telling us and why it is that they're telling us. The Bible says that God is going to cause the sun to scorch the earth in the last days and that the earth is going to be stored up for fire until the day of the destruction of the ungodly. That's what God says. But that's not what man says, is it? That's not what man's preaching. That's not what man's teaching. Man is once again proclaiming that he is wiser and more powerful than the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so the question becomes then, why would man want to hide what God is doing in order to proclaim that global warming is, become, uh, is because of carbon emissions. Why would man do that? Why would he want to hide the fact that he knows what God is doing? And, and my friends, I'm t I tell you the truth. They know. They know. They have Bibles. They've read these things. Don't think that the Department of Defense doesn't know what the Bible says and what's been prophesied. They do. They know exactly. They know. Oh, but there's more. There's more. It's not only carbon emissions now, but it's also methane as well. Congressman uh, Mark Wayne Mullen has pointed this out. This is in, they call it the Build Back Better Act. It is Joe Biden's $3.5 trillion package. Uh, and let me read this to you. In an attempt to eliminate fossil fuels... The legislation would impose a fee on all methane emissions, including the agriculture industry. The fee is just a tax for methane emissions. And here is what the uh, federal government estimates it will be. Uh, $6,500 per dairy cow annually. $2,600 per head of beef cattle annually and $500 per pig annually. That's more than what some of the animals are worth. So Democrats are saying that it costs nothing because they're raising taxes on people other than you. When they add $6,500 annually to each dairy cow of a dairy farm, where do you think the farmers who 
own the cows are going to shift the costs. Huh? Let's see here. What is the average number of dairy cows on a farm? Hmm? Let's see. The national, actually, the average herd size has increased. So now we're at 234 cows per dairy farm due to consolidation in the dairy industry. So 234 cows times 6,000, that's $1.5 million per farm. Now, who do you think is going to actually pay that? I mean, y'all do understand the way the economy works, right? The costs go up, so the price goes up. And Jen Psaki at the White House, she says that it's abhorrent that businesses would pass the costs on to consumers. If a dairy farm on low margins has to pay an additional $1.52 trillion, million dollars, because the Democrats have decided to tax their cows for farting, which is exactly what this is, and belching, who do you think is going to pay the cost? Yo, I, I'm not thinking this is actually in the legislation. And Mark Wayne Mullen, the congressman from Oklahoma, he's not actually using like, he's not pulling numbers out of the air. He's pulling numbers out of the legislation and the congressional estimates of what the revenue would generate. Do you see why NASA and many of these global country club billionaires want you to believe that all of this global warming and all of this climate change has to do with carbon emissions? My friends, all you have to do is follow the money. That's all you have to do, just follow the money. But I ask you plainly once again, what does the Bible say? What does God say about global warming? God says he's going to cause the sun to scorch the earth in the last days. And that the earth is being stored up for fire, along with the destruction of the ungodly. Some people will say that this is just a normal cycle. And that the earth goes through every few thousand years. It's just a normal cycle, don't worry about it. But my question to those folks who say that is exactly who is it that's been around for a thousand years that can testify to the validity of that hypothesis? What man or what woman has been around for a thousand years that can testify to the accuracy of that data and that hypothesis? I ask you plainly. And what data there is, the data that they're attempting to sell us, simply cannot be proven to be accurate because, once again, there is no one that's been around for a thousand years to be able to tell us exactly what has taken place and what has not taken place. Some will say that geology and carbon dating can give us facts that we need to know and to understand that these things have all happened in the past. But is that true? 
Both geology and carbon dating have both been found woefully inaccurate time and time again. Did you know that? You know, most geologists have calculated the biblical event of the Exodus incorrectly. For generations, the world thought that the Exodus never happened. In fact, we have actual rabbis that have proclaimed that the, the Exodus really didn't happen. It's just metaphorical. It's just a story. Why? Because they tried to find the archaeological evidence within a certain time span that carbon dating told them that it would be in, right? And they couldn't find anything. Not until a young man by the name of Timothy Mahoney decided to do a little bit of homework. My friends, if you've never heard of Timothy Mahoney or seen the evidence that he's brought to light concerning the Exodus, I would encourage you, highly encourage you, to take a look at that evidence that he has brought to light just recently. Once again... This leads directly back to the inaccuracies of things like carbon dating and many of the scientific ways that they calculate data. And I want us to not be ignorant of these things because this is extremely important. The question once again becomes, just how accurate is this carbon dating and all of this newfound science that's being used to proclaim all of these things that man is now proclaiming? Are these scientific measurements and experiments and data all sound and 100% accurate? The answer may, be, may surprise you. This particular article from LabMate Online reads as follows. It says, so what's the problem talking about carbon dating? It says, unfortunately, the believed amount of carbon present, present at the time of expiration is exactly that. It's a belief. It's an assumption. It's an estimate. It is very difficult for scientists to know how much carbon would have originally been present. One of the ways in which they have tried to overcome this difficulty was through using carbon equilibrium. Equilibrium is the name given to the point when the rate of carbon production and carbon decay are equal. By measuring the rate of production and of decay, both eminently quantifiable, scientists were able to estimate, get that my friends, estimate, that carbon in the atmosphere would go from zero to equilibrium in 30,000 to 50,000 years, since the universe is estimated to be millions of years old. Once again, my friends, estimated to be millions of years old. It was assumed that this equilibrium had already been reached. However, in the 1960s, the growth rate was found to be significantly higher than the decay rate, almost a third, in fact. This indicated that equilibrium had not, in fact, been reached, throwing off scientists' assumptions about carbon dating. 
They attempted to account for this by setting 1950 as a standard year for the ratio of C12 and C14 and measuring subsequent findings against that. How has it worked? In short, the answer is... Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, my friends. Sometimes carbon dating will agree with other evolutionary methods of age estimation, which is great. Other times, the findings will differ slightly, at which point scientists apply so-called correction tables to amend the results and eliminate discrepancies. Most concerning, though, is when the carbon dating directly opposes or contradicts other estimates, at this point, the carbon dating data is simply disregarded. So, if it doesn't agree with their hypothesis, they just get rid of it. You never see it. It's been summed up most succinctly in the words of American neuroscience professor Bruce Brew. If a C14 date supports our theories, we put it in the main text. If it does not entirely can contradict them, we put it in a footnote. And if it's completely out of date, we just drop it. <laughs> what does this mean for contemporary carbon dating? Essentially, this means that carbon dating, though a useful tool, is not 100% reliable. My friends, no matter what scientific data that you use, it's only speculative at best. And we need to know this, and we need to understand this. There is no factual proof of any data that is 100% reliable, and that, my friends, is just a fact. All of these timetables that man comes up with are built upon other variables. In fact, several different variables and assumptions that may or may not be correct. All of this carbon dating and attempting to figure out how old the world is, or what was going on a thousand years ago, is once again flawed at best. Which brings us back to what God says, which is what we know to be true. Once again, my friends, and science over and over again, time and time again, consistently proves God to be right and the Bible to be accurate. And I would submit to you that during this time of global warming is going to be another one of those instances. What else did God say that he was going to do in the last days? Let's continue reading down through Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. It says this, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and for their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. 
Now, my friends, I want to stop right here for just a moment, and I just want to think about this for just a moment. Yahuwah God tells us that even the great river Euphrates, which runs through Iraq, and the river Euphrates oftentimes refers to Babylon because that's where Babylon, the original Babylon, used to be. It was in Iraq. This river in Iraq and at the end of the age is said by God that he was going to, he was going to dry it up. So I ask you plainly, is that happening today? Is the Euphrates River drying up? How many rivers and lakes around the world today are drying up as we speak today in our time? Do you know? Because you should know. And can the Euphrates River, river be included in that number? What a mess. What an absolute mess. I mean, each time you say, oh, this is different than it was. What's it gonna be like in October? What's it gonna be like next April? There isn't a lot about the Colorado River that Jack Schmidt doesn't know. He's been making research trips on it for decades. But he's never seen the river this low. Look at this. Yeah, you used to be able to back a truck in here right into the water. Is this new this year, essentially? Yeah, it's happened within the past six months. I am stunned by how horrible this is. The Colorado is the lifeline of the American Southwest. It runs nearly 1,500 miles, supplying water and electricity to seven states in Mexico. Some 40 million people rely on its resources. But 20 years of drought made worse by climate change have brought things to a moment of crisis. This part of the river was once the upper end of Lake Powell, one of the two main reservoirs. Lake Powell filled for the first time in 1980. That concrete ramp was filled with houseboats, people backing in motorboats, people water skiing. And now look at that. Essentially, 1999-2000 was the last time the water was up at the base of that concrete ramp. And now it's lower than it's ever been since it filled. It's not only Powell. Lake Mead, the river's other major reservoir above the Hoover Dam, is only about a third full. Unless things change, which they won't, this month officials will declare a Tier 1 shortage for the first time ever. That means next year, major cutbacks are coming, starting with Arizona farmers. When that happens, a lot of farms will look like Nancy Kaywood's. She relies on water from another river, a tributary to the Colorado. But it got so low, she was totally cut off in April. So this out here, just looking at this, I mean, is this... Take is a look. This, is this dead now? Well, we don't think it's going to green back up. What were you growing here? Alfalfa. Uh-huh. See the seed lines uh -huh. and how it's just all dead. Our dam has no water. We have no water, period. Well, 
Lake Mead is now three quarters empty. As of June 2022, the lake is only at 28% of its full capacity. The federal government is predicting that over the next two years, the lake could drop as much as another 30 feet. But at the rate it's going right now, it could actually wind up being more. I found the part of Lake Mead that has become famous over the last month or so, and that is this boat right here. So you guys probably have seen on Twitter, on Facebook, this boat sticking out of the water. Well, there used to be water around this boat. You guys can see I'm walking right now. This ground is soft. I mean, it, it moves when you walk. It's kind of like being in a real life video game when you're out here, but it's firm enough you guys can see that I'm walking on this. I'm six foot three and a little over 200 pounds, and this is holding me up right now. But you guys can see this boat sticking out of the water or sticking out of the mud now because the water levels here at Lake Mead are about 1,045 feet. So they're down about 25 feet from a year ago and down about six feet just from a month ago. So when you guys were first seeing pictures of this boat, it was in water. It was so muddy over here, people couldn't even get close enough to actually touch it. As you guys are seeing me right now do, I'm gonna be able to get close enough. As I get a little closer, it does sink more, but I can touch this boat. If you're right here in the back of it, in the front of it, you are gonna sink a bit but you can get close enough now. The water line has receded enough that you can walk up and just touch this boat. This boat is probably sticking out of the water at least 20 feet. So when you see the pictures on Twitter, it doesn't really do it justice because when I stood here, even with my selfie stick extended, that's nine feet long, with my arms extended, I still couldn't reach the top of this thing. This boat is sticking out of the water big time. You still have debris in it. There's actually a small teddy bear that's been stuck in this boat for who knows how many years. At this point, the water level is so low that you could walk right up to this and you can put your hand on the steering wheel of this boat. That's what we're looking at with Lake Mead right now. So that's why there's all kinds of warnings and concerns. The US government uh, declared a, shortage, a drought or a water shortage last year for the Colorado River. And we're just getting into the beginning of summer. So as summer continues, this water is gonna get lower and lower. If you look out here, so you see how shallow the water is coming out here. I would not be surprised if by the end of the summer, this little island we're looking at, right here, we could actually walk to it. That's how dry it might get and how low the water might get. Because this boat right now is probably about 30 feet from the water line. And it's just gonna keep getting lower and lower as the summer continues. From satellite image, it shows clearly that the Euphrates River is extremely drying up. The Euphrates River is the longest and the most important river in the Middle East. Originating in Turkey, the Euphrates flows through Syria and Iraq to join the Tigris in the Shat al-Arab, which empties into the Persian Gulf. Since the last two decades, the Euphrates is continuously drying up. Strangled by the water policies of Iraq's neighbors, Turkey and Syria, three years severe drought, and years of misuse by Iraq and its farmers, the river is significantly smaller than it was just a few years ago. Some officials worry that it could soon be a country with no river. The shrinking of the Euphrates, a river so crucial to the birth of civilization that the Book of Revelation prophesied its drying up as a sign of the end times, has decimated farms along its banks, has left fishermen impoverished and has depleted riverside towns as farmers flee to the cities looking for work. Once again, we just read in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, that God said he is going to dry the Euphrates River up in the last days so that the kings can come across. And we, we could do a whole study on who those kings were, but we won't get into that today for time's sake. But the point that we need to see here is that, once again, there are some very specific things that our Father in Heaven tells us is going to happen at the end of the age. 
And he also commands us to watch. The question is, are we watching? Are we watching? Are we paying attention? Or are we being snowballed by what man is proclaiming? I suppose cows farting in a field is causing the great Euphrates to dry up too. I'm sure it is. And did we also not read in Revelation chapter 16 that God said that he would cause the sun to scorch the earth and that man would curse him for doing so? We just read that in Revelation chapter 16. I would submit to you that once again, all of this goes directly back to those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and those who do not. Once again, who is it that we have chosen to serve? Have we chosen to serve man or God? Who is it that we will believe? Will we believe man? Or will we believe Yahovah God? The creator of the heavens and the earth. Who told us that these things were coming to fruition? Because the very first thing that our Messiah told us in Matthew chapter 24, when his apostles asked him, what will be the sign of your return? What will be the sign of your coming back to the earth? The very first thing that he told them is, see to it that no one leads you astray. The very first thing that come out of his mouth. See to it that no one leads you astray. And I know that there's a lot of folks out there teaching and preaching about a pre-tribulation rescue. Once saved, always saved. Telling people that they have, the church has actually replaced the house of Israel. That's replacement theology. And on and on and on it goes, my friends. What are they doing? They are preaching peace and safety, peace and safety, when there is no peace and safety. We're going to fix it. We're going to steal your money out of your wallet in the process. But once we get enough of your money, we're going to fix it then. Oh boy, we're going to fix it then, buddy. We're going to, we're going to get right after it just as long, just until we, just once we, we drain your wallet and take everything away from you. Oh, then we're going to fix it. Well, let me ask you this. Why don't you just print the money? You print it for everything else. Why not just print it? I'd like to read you another scripture here from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. It says this, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they weren't ashamed at all. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says Yehovah. I'd like to also turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. It says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day, and we are not of the night or the darkness. What does God say that he will do to the disobedient nation? Do we know? We talked about this a little bit during our last session. I'd like to introduce to you some scripture that will help us to better understand what happens to a nation that becomes disobedient. Let's know and let's understand how our Father in Heaven handles a nation that has become disobedient. Shall we? Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I'd like to read verses 15 through 24. It says this, but if you will not obey the voice of Yahovah your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you shall be when you go out. Yahovah will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Yahovah will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Yahovah will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. Let me read that again. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 23. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. Yahovah will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. My friends, one of the most egregious transgressions, one of the most egregious sins in all of the Bible is sexual immorality. And make no mistake about it, sexual immorality has everything to do with 
spiritual immorality. The two are indeed connected one with another. Did you know that the United States is the largest distributor of pornography around the world? The United States is responsible for as much as 60% of the world's pornography. Two-thirds of the United States' porn sites are hosted in the state of California, with the country hosting a total of 4.2 million domains containing pornography, sexual immorality, and this also includes pedophilism, my friends. And this was back in 2013. When we take a look at this map, we can clearly see the United States as being the literal shame of the world concerning sexual immorality. And I would submit to you that this sexual immorality is not being exported from the United States, not only being exported from the United States, but it's also being practiced in the United States. And there should be no doubt in our minds that the devil has made the state of California the worldwide distribution center of sexual immorality. Make no mistake about it, my friends, the hub of the world's abominations when it comes to sexual immorality in the eyes of God is indeed the state of California here in these United States. If we'll notice here on this United States drought map, this is a drought map from 2021, we can clearly see that this drought started in the state of California and has been slowly sweeping its way across the United States for quite some time. There's no question that the majority of movies that are splashed across the silver screen today come from Hollywood, California. And I tell you the truth. Hollywood, California is the devil's pulpit. Let me repeat that again. Hollywood, California is the devil's pulpit. Hollywood is where the devil does his best work to indoctrinate our youth, to spread propaganda around the world, and to throw the law of God to the ground. And we not only choose to sit in front of that silver screen for hours and hours, mesmerized by it, worshiping the propaganda that is being preached from that silver screen, but we give our hard-earned money to pay for it. And then what do we do? Once we leave our offering at the movie box office, after bending our knees to the propaganda that we've been fed for the last two hours, we leave bragging about what we've just been indoctrinated with to all our friends and family so that they will go and be indoctrinated. Have you seen your local movie outlet lately, my friends? Have you tried to find a movie that you can watch with your family? Have you tried that lately? 
almost every Hollywood movie today makes uh, th- that Hollywood makes is packed full of demons and death and killing, mayhem, or godlike superheroes that make our children want to be like God. And even movies that you think might be safe for the whole family are choked full of woke philosophy and homosexuality and race-baiting propaganda. Things that just 20 years ago we would have been ashamed of. I'd like to read a little bit more from the Bible concerning what the prophet Jeremiah had written about the disobedience of the house of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 14 and how God handled disobedience. Jeremiah chapter 14 verses 1 through 7. The word of Yahovah that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return their vessels empty. They're ashamed and confounded and they cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there's no grass. The wild donkey stands bare on the heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Yahovah, for your name's sake. For our black backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. My friends, why do you suppose we have this Bible today? Why do you suppose we have this over 6,000-year-old book? Why do you think it's been preserved for us today? My friends, I would contend that this book, the Bible, these 66 books that we have here that, are, that make up this Bible, these God-breathed scriptures, have been preserved by the hand of God. Did you know that people have died so that you could have this Bible? During the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church murdered millions of people, more than Hitler ever even thought of, for simply owning a Bible. Did you know that? The Roman Catholic Church had literally stolen the scriptures from the public. And if you were found reading a Bible or even owning a Bible, let alone transcribing the Bible, they would take you into the town square tie you to a post, and strangle you while setting you on fire while still alive. People died so that we could have this book in our hands today. They gave their very lives. If you don't know what the Dark Ages are all about, you need to study your church history. You need to know and understand these things. Yahuwah God has preserved this Bible for you and me. Why? Because he knew at the end of the age we were going to need it. We can't.
cannot navigate through these last days without this book. That's why we have it. The very reason that we have this Bible is so that we will know the character of God, so that we will know these mistakes that the house of Israel has made in the past so that we will not repeat them. He wants us to know our history. He wants us to know what not to do. And I tell you the truth, my friends, we will be judged much more harshly than the house of Israel was because we have them as an example. An example that they did not have. What causes our Father in Heaven to to bring down famine and plague upon the earth? What causes Him to do these things? What causes Him to, to make the sun scorch the earth? What causes Him to do these things? How much has this land been polluted with violence and godlessness and lawlessness? Did our Messiah not tell us in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew that because lawlessness would be increased, that the love of many would grow cold? And have we not seen lawlessness increase across the land? Boys that don't know that they're boys and girls that don't know that they're girls? Children in preschool that can't even decipher whether or not they're boys and girls, so confused, so pre-programmed that their parents are taking them to drag queens and, and, and drag pageants. Have the churches, not today, sat apathetically, sinfully silent in the face of adversity, because they have incorporated God's house with the government through their 501c3 tax-exempt status. Oh, we can't lose our 501c3 tax-exempt status. So we can't talk about these things, or we'll get into trouble. Well, you wouldn't be getting into trouble if you hadn't incorporated the house of God with the government. Has the church itself not drug all of these pagan abominations into the house of God from their mother church of Rome and the beast that we were warned about by the prophets and the apostles? Godlessness and lawlessness are not just in the world, my friends. It's not just the world that God is angry with. It's the church. Godlessness and lawlessness are also well entrenched within today's modern-day so-called Christian denominational empires of dirt. Who don't even know which day the seventh-day Sabbath is anymore. How is the church supposed to be a light on a hill to all the nations when the church itself is full of darkness? Pagan practices and the abominations of Baal of Peor. 
And why have the nations gone dark? Why is there no light to be found? Why are our world leaders dumb, deaf, and blind? Why is God allowing the sun to scorch the earth? Why is God allowing famine and plague to fall upon our land? I tell you why. Because lawlessness has been increased. And because lawlessness has been increased, the love of many has grown cold. Man has replaced the love of God with his own cobbed together version of love. Man has traded what is sweet for what is bitter and what is bitter for what is sweet. Man has traded what is good for what is evil and what is evil for what is good, just like was prophesied that he would do. And the church today, in all of her gluttony and her apathetic slumber, sits comfortably, so comfortably in her sin that the devil doesn't even have to shut and lock the jail cell door. Our Father in heaven declares the end from the beginning, my friends. Those who do not know the beginning will not know the end. Those who do not know the Old Testament will not know the New Testament. Those who do not understand the beginning of the book will not understand the end of the book. I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. It says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And just what was it that our Father proclaimed from the beginning? If he proclaims the end from the beginning... What was it that he proclaimed from the beginning? Well, let's turn to the beginning in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verses 16 through 18, says this. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of Yahovah will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that Yahovah is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Yahovah God warned his people what would happen to them if they turned away from him. God warned the house of Israel 
the assembly, if you will. And all the Gentiles that were grafted into the house of Israel. He warned them. And those warnings that we are reading in this book are a warning to each and every one of us. And yes, by the way, the Gentiles were being grafted into the house of Israel from the very beginning. And if you do not know that, I encourage you to go read Exodus chapter 12 or Numbers chapter 15 to know and to understand who the stranger, the Gentile stranger was that was traveling with the house of Israel. He was a Gentile. And yes, he was commanded to be circumcised. And yes, he was commanded to follow the exact same law. Because God himself had said there will be one law for both you and the stranger. One assembly. One, not two. One. There is no such thing as Noahide laws that come from these disgusting and filthy Babylonian rabbinical rabbis that have come up out of Babylon. Who once again add to God's word and take away from God's word. That, my friends, is an abomination. It is a sin. And they have no right. Even from the building of the temple, God warned his people what he would do if they turned away from him. And I'd like to read that to you. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11 through 14. says this, Thus Solomon finished the house of Yahovah in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of Yahovah and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then Yahovah appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to him, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. My friends, I ask you plainly, how hard is it to turn and to seek the face of Yahovah God? Is that hard to do? Because I would submit to you that it's not hard at all. But I would also submit to you that I don't see anyone in this nation, or any nation for that matter, getting down on their knees and turning and seeking the face of God. We can fix it. Just need enough of your money. We're going to put all these ranchers out of business. We're going to put all these farmers out of business. We're going to take their whole livelihood from them, their whole life away from them. So that we can fix it. We can fix global warming. We can fix, we can override what God is doing. Because we're smarter than God, don't you see? Oh, yeah, we're smart. Uh-huh. 
Even Elijah warned King Ahab that a drought was going to come upon the land because of their lawlessness. But they too didn't listen. Let's read that as well. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahuwah, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of Yahuwah came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahovah. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, the east, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, why is there flooding in some places then? You know, we just had this big flood in Kentucky and this big flood out in uh, Las Vegas. I don't know if you've seen the news there. Uh, The water was coming into these big casinos and places like Circus Circus and what have you. Just torrential rain, water everywhere coming through the ceiling. Kentucky, many people passed away. And swept away by the floods there. Why is there drought in some areas and flooding in other areas? I'd like to read you Amos chapter 4. Let's turn to Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. I'm sorry, 6 through 12. Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 12 says this. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares Jehovah. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares Jehovah. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares Jehovah. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with sword and carried away your houses, And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares Jehovah. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares Jehovah. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. My friends, the examples all throughout the Bible are endless. 
They're innumerable. They're, they're just all throughout the 66 books of our Bibles. And therefore, once again, we may see flooding in one place and drought in another, just as God says. But make no mistake about it. Whether there is drought or whether there is flooding, there will be no produce. There will be no garden. There will be no food. Even after our Messiah returns and once again establishes His Father's law on the land, there will be those nations who will refuse to go up to honor our Father during the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is in our Bibles, my friends. The prophet Zechariah prophesied to us what was going to take place after our Messiah returns during that thousand-year millennial reign here on this earth. And he tells us that after the nations come after Israel, after Yehovah God has brought back uh, both Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, after all of this, that if the nations did not come up to honor him on the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would have no rain. I'd like to read that to you. Zechariah chapter 14. Again, Zechariah chapter 14 says this, Behold, a day is coming for Yahovah, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahuwah will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights, against, when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahovah my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to Yahuwah neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And Yahuwah will be king over all the earth. On that day Yahuwah will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanal to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. 
And this shall be the plague with which Yahovah will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from Yahovah shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this shall fall on the houses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then, listen to this, my friends, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahovah of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahovah of hosts, there will be no rain on them. My friends, I'd like to read that to you again. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. And once again, this is after our, our father comes, after he has taken back Jerusalem, after Jerusalem is living in security, after our Messiah returns. And what does he say? He says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahovah of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahuwah of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which Yahuwah afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. That's tabernacles, my friend. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to Yahovah, and the pots in the house of Yahovah shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to Yahovah of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahovah of hosts on that day. Says your Bible. My friends, is your pastor teaching these things? Is your church teaching these things? Have you ever heard this before, sitting in a church pew for any number of years? And if not, I'd like you to ask yourself, why not? Those who teach pre-tribulation rescue and once saved, always saved, and replacement theology and the Roman Catholic first day of the week, Sunday Sabbath, commanded by no one in your Bible. And Good Friday, commanded by no one in your Bible. And Easter, commanded by no one in your Bible. And Christ Mass, 
commanded by no one in your Bible, are exactly those wolves in sheep's clothing that your Messiah warned you not to allow to lead you astray. Get away from them. Come out of her, my people. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Who is that? It's the beast, the false prophet. Where abomination is drug into the house of God, desolation is required. And I tell you the truth, my friends. It will not only be the world who will soon feel the full force of the wrath of the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but so too will the godless denominational empires of dirt feel the full force of his wrath. Everything that the church is doing today, all the abominations, all the pagan practices and pagan, holi pagan holidays that they worship and the things that they do today are exactly what we see in the Old Testament. And that's why your pastor doesn't want you to read the Old Testament. He doesn't want you to see these things. He doesn't want you to learn your history. He doesn't want you to know what to watch out for. Why? Well, because that just doesn't fit my denominational dogma. Why is it, my friends, that our Messiah told the Pharisees, the rabbinical Pharisees of his time that had come up out of Babylon, why did he tell them that they were children of the devil? Because they were honoring him with their lips, blah, 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 while their hearts were far from him, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What's changed today? Why are we in the position that we're in today? Why are we in the middle of a plague? Why are we in the middle of a famine coming upon us right now today? Why are we in the middle of, the, of global warming? I tell you the truth, there's no difference between the Pharisees of our Messiah's time and the Pharisees that are standing behind our pulpits today who are sitting apathetically sinful, preaching and teaching pagan doctrines and doctrines of men instead of teaching and preaching the doctrines of God. Do not think that the wrath of God will fall only on the world, my friends, because that's what the church teaches. That's what they preach. Oh, you, 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 you don't have to worry. No, no, no. Peace and safety. Peace and safety for you. No harm's going to come to you. No, 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 no. That's for the world. The world. God's wrath is for the world. He's coming for the world. He's coming for the worldly. 
James chapter 4, verse 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let me read that to you again. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Please, my friends, do not be one of those people in the last days who will come proudfully boasting about how you call Jesus Lord, Lord or how you prophesied in his name, or how you cast out demons in his name, or how you did many mighty works in his name, only to have him look you in the eye and tell you that he never knew you, because you willfully and intentionally chose to be lawless. Please, my friends, do not be one of those. Do not be counted in that number. Please know that the wrath of God, when the house of Israel was in Egypt, fell upon the house of Israel. The wrath of God, when the house of Israel was in Egypt, did God remove the house of Israel and then show his wrath to Egypt? Or did God show his wrath to Egypt and to the house of Israel who was still in Egypt? I tell you the truth, my friends. The house of Israel was in Egypt when those plagues hit. And the house of Israel will be on the earth when God's wrath hits. And I would submit to you that God's wrath is already just beginning to get warmed up. Are we ready? That's the question. The question is, once again, not when will a pre-tribulation rescue save me and whisk me away? That's not the question. The question is, how much do you love him? Do you love him enough to endure to the end as he endured to the end, as the apostles endured to the end, as the prophets endured to the end? Or do you love him enough to conquer over evil the way that he conquered over evil, the way that the apostles conquered over evil, the way the prophets conquered over evil? It's not about getting whisked away in a pre-tribulation rescue, my friends. It's about enduring to the end, staying the course, conquering over evil. Being the light to the world that we need to be. Global warming or God's wrath. You decide. But before you do, I beg you to remember to fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man.